Craftmark Homes is your neighborhood home builder. Craftmark has new homes, condos, and townhomes ready for you to enjoy your fall in comfort and class. Visit craftmarkhomes.com today and find your dream new home in D.C., Maryland, or Virginia. That's craftmarkhomes.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hello, and welcome to Speakeasy, the Alexandria Times podcast. I'm Cody Mellicline, reporter at the Times, and today I welcome Michael Pope, an author and journalist who has written for a variety of publications, including the Alexandria Gazette Packet and Virginia Public Radio. He is also the former chairman of Agenda Alexandria and co-host of the Transition Virginia podcast. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Before you get started, let me say I am a big fan of your podcast. I've been listening to it since you first launched it. I'm also a big fan of the Alexandria Times in general and your work in particular, Cody. So it's really a pleasure to join your podcast because I'm a big fan. Appreciate it. I'm glad that there's no video going with this podcast because I'm blushing a little bit. (laughs) We're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. Obviously, this is going to be a pretty journalism focused uh, podcast, but you are also notably an author of, of four books, all of which kind of revolve around local history in the area. And so we will certainly dive into that. But I did want to start out talking a little bit about how you started, I guess, your journey into journalism. Because as I, as I understand it, it wasn't always your intention to kind of make your way into journalism. Yeah. You know, like many journalists, I sort of initially fashioned myself as a writer and I was kind of interested in writing. And so I had a college professor who said, hey, you should sort of check out the college newspaper and see if they're interested. So um, I, over a summer, I was spending a summer in Tampa. And so I got involved in the college newspaper at the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa. The college newspaper is called The Oracle. And so I started working for the USF Oracle in a, a summer when I was in college. And I just took to it immediately. I loved the vibe. I loved the other people involved in journalism. And so when I went back to uh, my actual college, which is Florida State in Tallahassee, I got involved in the local newspaper, which is a daily newspaper, the Tallahassee Democrat. It was owned. It was a Knight Ritter newspaper at the time. And so uh, fast forward, I eventually got a job at the Tallahassee Democrat as a news assistant, which is sort of the lowest level on the rungs of power at the newspaper. I was actually still in college when I got hired as a news assistant. And so it was things like writing obituaries, doing mm-hmm. the weather report. Uh, you know, there was a time when I did like student spotlight, um, you know, and so and sort of you would work your way up to writing news obituaries. So if somebody sort of significant in the community died, uh, I would call the grieving widow and sort of write a, a news obituary. And so I just loved it. And so by the time I got out of graduate school, I got a, you know, a sort of a higher level job at the newspaper as the letters editor. So I was the editor of the letters to the editor and sort of a junior member of the editorial board. And I wrote uh, editorials for the Democrat, uh, which was tons of fun. And I just never turned back and have been doing journalism ever since. What was it like seeing your your words first published in print? I'm always kind of curious because for me, it was it was quite impactful to finally see kind of something I had written, something I'd created kind of on there on, on the page. What was it like for you? Totally thrilling. I even to this day, I love seeing <laughs> seeing my stuff in print. You know, uh, there obviously the world has changed a lot sure. in recent years, and and things are online. And seeing your stuff being published online, of course, is great. 
But seeing it, there's just something about seeing your work in print that is just, even today, still thrilling for me. Is it, do, you, do you find that's the case for you, Cody? I certainly do. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I've been working at the Times for two years and I still love seeing something that came out of my head now kind of in a physical form. It's different. It's different online for sure. It's definitely still out there. But to see the words on the page is just, it is thrilling. I agree. What, tell me what it's like writing editorial. Because that, that is something that I personally don't have a lot of experience in, but it's it's a, it's kind of a whole different ballgame than what people usually think of as reporting. Yeah, it is. So there's two different parts of that. One of them is column writing and the other is sort of the more formal editorial writing in the sense of an editorial that represents the views of the editorial sure. board. And so I spent years doing both of those things. Um, and I found actually that there are lots of things I just don't have an opinion about. And so like when you write a, an opinion column regularly, which I did for several years, uh, it's really, it's really difficult. It was difficult for me because I, the first thing you have to do is figure out what your opinion is and then sort of revolve everything around your opinion. And I found myself researching and researching and researching just to figure out like what my opinion is. And I think a lot of people, their starting point is I have an opinion and then I learn stuff about it. Uh, that's not how I approach the world. I actually am very slow to form an opinion. And even when I do form an opinion, I'm the first person to be devil's advocate and say, oh, yeah, well, what about this? And what about that? And so after years of editorial writing, I realized that's not my bag. That's not my thing. It's not what I'm good at. It's not how I view the world. And so I don't really do editorial writing anymore. Uh, the, there's a whole separate thing in that world, which is the sort of more formalized opinions that represent the editorial board. And mm. I also did that for, for quite a while. And that was, you know, like you want to make sure that you're representing the views of the editorial page editor, the all of the other people who work for the editorial page editor, and perhaps most importantly, the opinion of the publisher. And so really what it, what it comes down to is this this editorial represent, it represents a group opinion of this group of people. But it's definitely 100% represents the opinion of the publisher who is the boss. And so everybody works for the publisher. And so that, that actually was challenging, but more straightforward. Um, mm -hmm. And so, in fact, all of these were sort of giving me the lessons that editorial writing is, or is, is like column writing is really not for me, <laughs> uh, at least at this stage. And so maybe at some point I'll change my mind, but that's just not something that I'm particularly interested in doing right now. What was it like transitioning from that to doing more kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word, just kind of straightforward news writing and reporting? Well, it was like a breath of fresh air. I mean, you get, I, you know, I, I always tell people all good journalism is really about conflict. And so any really good, any storytelling really is about conflict. And so you get various points of view, you present complicated stuff in an easy to digest way. Uh, you get to tell stories. You get to sort of in normal times be on the scene of stuff while it's happening and sort of explain what that looks like, what it feels like, what it smells like. And you sort of get to be in the middle of things. Of course, that's in normal times. We're not doing that right now so much, but um, that's life. Yeah. Uh, so it was a great transition. I love doing this line of work. And I also love having the ability to do it in print, online, and magazines, on the radio. I get to play around with all kinds of different formats, which is great. 
Yeah, I obviously I think anyone who's familiar with your work knows that you you are passionate about and kind of focus your work on on politics, policy. Is that something that you knew you wanted to write about from the get-go or was it something you kind of found your passion for kind of on the job? Oh yeah, I always gravitated towards politics. Okay. I mean, even the that that early experience I was talking about in terms of the the college newspaper at the USF Oracle that I used to write for. I mean, that was all sort of political based stuff. And so there's this intersection of history and politics that I always sort of gravitate towards. Um, so if it sort of fuses those two things, it's sort of that's my ideal sweet spot. In that area specifically, where do you find your stories and what what stories do you find are draw your attention or you think are worth pursuing? Is it, I imagine it's always driven by that conflict because as you said, any story is kind of has a core element of conflict to it, but what, what stories kind of pull your attention? That's actually kind of a difficult question to answer. Um, I, a lot of times focus my work on things that I would like to read as a newspaper reader, things I would like to listen to as a podcast listener, kinds of stories I want to hear on the radio as a radio broadcaster. And it's all sort of based on, you know, me as a news consumer, I would want to read a story about X. I would want to hear a story on the radio about Y. And so that's the kinds of things that I pursue. Um, Now, as to what those are, that that changes every day. That's actually the beauty of the job. It, it always is, yeah. changes every day. The stuff that I'm interested in today, I do a story and I will be interested in something totally different tomorrow. So, I mean, that's really the the beauty of this line of work. Most people get up and they go to work and they do the same thing every day. Uh, people like you and I are fortunate that we get to do something totally different every day. So I, I know I know something you've been doing as of late is a lot of data-driven work. Um, and for for a lot of journalists, that that kind of requires a whole other a whole other bag of tricks, a whole other kind of frame of understanding for for your work what what kind of has driven you to get involved in that and and what kind of keeps you addicted to it because i know it can be pretty addicting once you get into it yes guilty as charged i'm 100 (laughs) percent addicted to data sets i love digging through excel spreadsheets and looking for trends and there's this group that i'm a member of called investigative reporters and editors and they have this handbook the reporter's handbook and there's one phrase in that handbook that I always remember when I think about this kind of work, which is documents lead you to people, people lead you to documents. And so when you've got a data set, you can look at trends and find out sort of the newsworthy bits, things that you want to pursue. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you will realize there are people that you should be talking to about that. I mean, um, you know, there are academic types who will write things that are based on numerical trends. But in the world of journalism, we want to put a human face on things. So you find so you find people that explain the documents or tell the story of the documents. And then those people will inevitably lead you to more documents, which will then lead you to lead you to more people. So mm-hmm. uh, it is really addicting to look at a data set and figure out sort of what is the human story that's being told here and find those humans to tell that story. Uh, which of course will lead you to more documents, and so uh, hopefully in the process, people will you know learn things about what the documents are telling them and the city that they live in, or the state that they live in, or the world that they live in. How did you How did you find yourself in Alexandria? What brought you up here? 
So uh, when my wife and I got married uh, back in 2004, we wanted to move to the big city. So we had two <laughs> options for the big city. One was New Orleans. The other was Washington, D.C. So uh, my wife got a job at The Motley Fool, um, which I heard was got a shout out on one of your recent podcasts mm-hmm. from Stephanie Landrum, gave The Motley Fool a shout out. And so The Motley Fool moved us up here, and there was a long period of time when I was essentially unemployed and looking for work in journalism. And that's when I started giving ghost and graveyard tours of Old Town Alexandria. So I'd dress up in this ridiculous colonial costume (laughs) and walk around the streets of Alexandria leading tourists and eighth grade students on these nighttime ghost tours, which were tons of fun. I, I sure. loved, I don't I actually haven't given the ghost tours in many years, but uh, I really enjoyed giving them and it's a, it's a big trip. I bet that's a catnip for a, for a history fan like yourself. Yeah. I just immediately gravitated toward it. You know, I, when we first moved here, of course, we're walking around old town and going to restaurants and stuff. And then you see them of course, walking around. And so we immediately, you know, one of the first things we did was go on the ghost tour, just sort of as tourists. And, uh, after it was over with, I struck up a conversation with the tour guide. And so we started talking as it turns out, he was the owner of the company. His name is Wellington Watts. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't long before I was in that ridiculous costume, giving the ghost tours myself. Yeah. And I know, so the, the first job you got up here was working for the Gazette packet, which obviously has a legacy in Alexandria. And as I've come to understand in the country itself, was that just a matter of you applied for the job, saw an opening and then grabbed the opportunity? How, how, did you come about getting that job? If only it were that simple. No, <laughs> it was more complicated than that. So I, you know, being a history person, I'm, I'm learning all I can about the history of Alexandria, which is, of course, goes back for many years and is very interesting. And there is, as you mentioned, this his, this newspaper with this amazing legacy. This newspaper was founded in 1784. It's It's either the oldest newspaper in the country or one of the oldest, depending on how you want to sort of date newspapers. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I wanted to work for this newspaper. And so I would call up the publisher like week after week after week. Do you have any openings at the newspaper? No, not now. You should call back in the future. Do you have any newspaper? Do you have any openings now? No, not now. You should call back in the future. So I called this poor woman every week for a long period of time. And then eventually she said, yes, we have an opening. And I applied and got the gig. And so, I, yes, I worked for the Alexander Gazette Packet as sort of a full-time employee for uh, a almost a decade, not quite a decade, and then moved into radio full-time. And in more recent years, have sort of I do both. I work in radio full-time, but I also write for the Alexandria Gazette packet like once a week. Did you just start out doing general assignment work or were you on a beat specifically? Uh, so when, when I started working in radio, it, the beat was Virginia. So, I mean, that's yeah. kind of mainly politics, but uh, any other thing that happens to be going on in Virginia. So, um, which I, it's still kind of my beat on the radio. I, it's mainly the General Assembly and the governor and the state mm-hmm. government. Um, but it's open to all manner of other things, including education, environmental writing, and whatever documents I'm looking at this week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yourself being kind of a, someone who has written locally and for a local publication, do you did you find that your your work helped you kind of become closer to the place you live, or did you feel like you had to keep a certain amount of distance from it? I know something we learned in in journalism school was kind of the the fallacy of the objective reporter, um, and that I think that has become increasingly criticized over time. Obviously, but but did you do you find that you 
do your work most effectively effectively when you do invest yourself in the community you're writing about and kind of close that gap, so to speak? You know, this issue of the fallacy of the objective reporter is something that people in our industry actually give quite a lot of thought to. Yeah. I've got a really good friend who is the the a journalism professor at Elon College down in North Carolina. And he and I used to work together at this newspaper in Tallahassee. And he is of the mind that journalists should not vote. I mean, he really takes this to an extreme. He actually does not vote in any election because he feels like it might sort of give him an unconscious bias, maybe, in terms of when he's interviewing an elected official or even editing copy of one of his journalists who mm-hmm. is interviewing an elected official, that he might have some sort of, uh, like, like I said, unconscious bias one way or the other. And so to head that off, he just doesn't vote at all. And there are journalists who believe that. And I think that's an entirely reasonable way of looking at the world. I don't subscribe to that. And I do vote. Um, There's another part of this, which is this thing about bias. And people often accuse journalists of having bias one way or the other. And the thing I always come back to on that is, of course, I have a bias. You have a bias too. Everybody has a bias. If there was no bias, there would be no news because nothing would be important. If you think about the front page of a newspaper, there's somebody somewhere that had a bias that said, these are the most important stories, and these are the stories that should be on the front page. Mm -hmm. If you think about a radio broadcast, there's somebody somewhere that says, these are the most important stories, so we're sticking them in the first three minutes of the hour. And so, uh, yes, of course I have a bias because I want to write good journalism. If I didn't care what kind of journalism I did, I would have no bias. And the, the world of course, is full of bias because if there was no bias, nothing would be newsworthy and nobody would be interested in consuming news. Yeah, it requires us. I mean, it does require a certain amount of investment. Whether, I mean, there's, I think I often find that that what people attribute to bias, they really, what they're looking for is balance of perspectives. And that's obviously the job of the journalist in, in almost every story is to prevent, pre- present a balance of perspectives. Um yeah, I know the way that I approach my work, I'm kind of a junkie for bias, actually. So yeah. I actually, I, I want stories to be balanced in a way that sometimes you fall into a trap because, I mean, people now, of course, are really sort of focused on environmental issues. Sure. And if you think about, you know, globe or um, climate change as a really good example of this, there are two sides to climate change. Sure. One of them is the science, the scientists and the scientific community. And the there is another side, which is people who don't believe the scientific community. Mm-hmm. So should we as journalists, you know, fall into the trap of making them equal when they're really not equal at all? Um, and so you really have to, this is a minefield walking through this yeah. thing about balance because uh, balance is very important. And I'm always trying to find balance. And, you know, in my years of covering city government, I like there'd be the zoning change. And then there's the one person who's adamant against zoning change, who speaks at a city council meeting and you put them side by side, you, you know, run the risk of creating a false equivalency Mm -hmm. where, whereas every, you know, everybody's on board with the zoning change with this, with the exception of this one person who's very loud about their, uh, their objection to it. Uh, So, I mean, when you present that, do you do it in a way where it seems like there's balance when there's really not balance? And so these are issues that people like you and I have to think through, and it's not easy making these decisions. Sure. And it's only become more of a minefield as 
certain ways of thinking have kind of been elevated recently in politics and the public sphere. Uh, it has become, I think, probably more vital than ever to reconsider what that balance means and not, as, as you said, kind of, there's, there's a, there's a danger of falling into like a kind of a both sidesism. Like both sides have valid points when, when sometimes depending on the story, there are certainly two sides, but other times when you're talking about people who are questioning global warming, or um, if you're talking about white nationalist movements, there's certainly something to be said for kind of reconsidering what that means. Yeah. White nationalism is a really great example because there are, there really are two sides or probably more than two sides on that. You know, should we, when thinking or writing about that issue, make it a point to go out and find the, the, the white nationalists who support the neo-Nazi movement, they're out there. You know, sure. they're, they're living in our community. Should we make the effort to provide balance in our story about the Confederate monument being removed from Washington street by going out to find the white nationalist who's going to tell you their perspective on the Confederate statue being removed? Maybe. I mean, I, there is an argument for that. I'm, I, I wrestle with these issues all the time. I don't really know the answer to that. Case architects and remodelers developed their proprietary case study process to help you explore the possibilities in your home. Case just opened their fourth design studio right in Old Town on the corner of Washington and King Streets. Because during these times, home is more important than ever. Visit casedesign.com to schedule your personal consultation. One thing I'm kind of curious about is obviously you've covered the, the Virginia General Assembly pretty extensively. This year, the uh, special session, which is still going on. <laughs> um, the special session that will never end. Yeah, yes, true. the very special, special session. Um, it's obviously very different this year because of everything related to COVID. Walk me through what it's been like covering the General Assembly this year for you. Um, and maybe more broadly, how kind of your job has changed in light of everything going on with the pandemic. Well, you know, covering the General Assembly earlier this year is totally different than covering the General Assembly now. So there was the actual sort of General Assembly session back in January and February and March that was your sort of standard um, General Assembly session. Although it was also radically different because the Democrats were in power for the first time in a generation. And I personally had never witnessed the Democrats being in power. Mm-hmm. So it was, in some ways, it was a standard General Assembly session. And in other ways, it was a General Assembly session unlike anything that I had ever seen before. And uh, so it was really interesting seeing the change of power. In fact, this is how I got involved in this podcast that that I'm involved in. Uh, the Thomas Bowman, the co-host, sort of pitched this idea to me, documenting the transition of power. Uh, and so we started this podcast series that looks at, well, this is the transition. This is how it's working. Um, so that was the early part of the year, the before times, as people like yes. to say now. So now there's a General Assembly session going on that's virtual um, or half virtual, really, because the Senate is meeting in person. The House is meeting virtually. So I'm not down there in Richmond. I'd love to be down there in Richmond, but I'm not going down there with this environment. Uh, even if even if I was there, what am I going to do? Like walk up to the senators and stick a microphone in their face? I mean, it's just, just not, it's not a situation that, um, well, anyway, so I'm in front of my computer covering the General Assembly, which is not ideal. <laughs> and, you know, one of the beauties of being there is you can corner the people uh, and so like, if there's a vote that you're particularly interested in that you're following and people oftentimes will vote without explaining their vote one way or the other. And so if it's something that you're really interested in after the vote takes place, you can go up to Senator so-and-so and say, well, why did you vote against that? Um, 
or or the other way around. Why did you vote for that? And so that get them to explain their vote. And then, of course, you can cross-examine them and uh, come up with a follow-up question. And this is the beauty of being there in person. And you can't do that online. Uh, there's another really important stuff, the thing that happens in journalism when you are actually there in person, which is the random events. So mm-hmm. any sort of public meeting, whether it's a zoning meeting or a general assembly subcommittee meeting, you show up early and you will meet people and you will overhear conversations and you will find out about other stuff that's going on that has nothing to do with the reason you showed up at that meeting. Uh, And same thing happens after the meeting is over with. You will meet people and learn things and overhear things. And so uh, you and I are being deprived of that in this era where we're sitting in front of our computers all the time. And so it is a different way of working, but it's the world that we are living in now. So I guess we should adjust to it for the near future. What are, having, having covered the General Assembly for as long as you have, what are some of the peculiarities of this specific kind of political body? Every, I guess every state's kind of government has its own kind of unique flavor and kind of peculiarities. What, what have you been... Over the, the years you've covered the General Assembly, what have you kind of learned to be some of the more interesting elements of it? Well, I'll give you one thing I really hate and one thing I really love. Okay. Um, and, balance. Well, actually, let me, let's start, yeah, well, that's balance. Uh, we'll start by saying that I it's just a personal thrill for me to report about and cover an institution that is 400 years old, right? It's the yeah. longest serving democracy in what they used to call the new world. Uh, so that is just thrilling to be part of that. And, you know, the the building itself has this long and storied history. And so it's just sort of thrilling to be there from the get go. Uh, The thing that drives me crazy and I just hate is the lack of transparency. So this is getting into the weeds of the process a little bit, but there's this part of the process called the conference committee. So if the House passes a bill and the Senate passes a bill, but they're slightly different there or even they're very different uh, and they can't come to an agreement between the House and the Senate, they go into a secret closed door conference committee that is not open to the public, that is not open to the press, and they strike a deal. And then they emerge from their closed door smoke-filled room and they say, this is the compromise committee report. And then the House votes on the report and the Senate votes on the report. But so there's this part of the process that uh, one of the lawmakers was recently describing to me as like a a train tunnel. So everything is transparent Mm -hmm. before the train enters the tunnel. Then there's this period of darkness where like there's no visibility. Then it emerges on the other side. So uh, it really bothers me, this lack of transparency. And there is, there are other state legislatures across the country that have conference committees that are open to the public and there are open to the press. And I mean, the, one of the arguments for having the secret closed door conference committees is they, they're often not actual meetings in a formal sense where you like you reserve a room and all of your committee members show up in the room and they actually have a formalized meeting. A lot of times the way it happens is there are two people that have a conversation in an elevator. So it's mm-hmm. like the house, the house member and the Senate member, this, they need to resolve the differences between the house and the Senate. So usually what happens is there is two key players you know, the patrons of the bill on the House or the Senate side and trying to resolve the differences. And the other people, depending on what the bill is and what the stakes are, the other people in the conference committee may or may not be involved. But in reality, most of the time, it's two key players. And so all they need to do is come to some kind of agreement. And so oftentimes, this is a very brief conversation that happens in an elevator or happens in the hallway outside, you know, as as the two lawmakers are going in opposite directions. Um, sometimes it is a more formalized thing where they get in a room and, and hammer things out. So 
Uh, for whatever reason, they like the lack of transparency. They like the secrecy. It bugs the heck out of me, and I'm always complaining about it. The other thing that I will say to its credit, the way the system works, is that there is quite a lot of transparency on lobbying. So this is something that I actually don't see an equivalent of this in Washington, D.C., but the way they do things in Richmond that I really do like is anytime that there's a bill, when the committee is hearing it, there comes a point where the chairman will say, does anybody want to speak for or against this bill? And that's when all of the lobbyists line up. And mm -hmm. so like the lobbyists for Dominion will say, well, Dominion supports this bill or Dominion opposes this bill. Or, and then depending on what kind of bill it is, then like the Poultry Federation will get up and say, the Poultry Federation opposes this bill. Um, and people think about lobbyists as being business interests, which mm -hmm. of course they are, but the world of lobbying is much larger than that. So like the Legal Aid Justice Center has a lobbyist and the Legal Aid Justice Center lobbyist will get up and they say, well, we oppose this bill and here's why. Or the Virginia Poverty Law Center will get up and they'll say, well, we support this bill and here's why. So as a journalist who's there covering it, it's actually very useful to know sure. that the Poultry Federation opposes this bill or the just Legal Aid Justice Center supports this bill. And so uh, there's a lot of visibility with lobbying that happens in Richmond that I really like. And it's actually very helpful in understanding the bills and who's on what side of it. Both of those things are kind of about transparency. The thing that I really hate the most about the process in Richmond is the lack of transparency with this one part of the process. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I really actually like quite a great deal about the process in Richmond is the lobbying part of it. So let's balance there. Great. Yeah, sure. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in radio? Because obviously you work for Virginia Public Radio now. Is that a direction you became more interested in later in your career? Did you know that you wanted to kind of get involved in, in that side of kind of audio production? So it, uh, I got involved in radio kind of almost as a fluke, really. I mean, I've been a radio listener for a long time. Sure. And I've been a NPR listener, public radio listener for many, many years. And I never really thought of myself as going into public radio. But then when the economy crashed the last time, the, <laughs> like a decade ago, yeah. uh, the newspaper, the Alexander Gazette Packet and the chain of newspapers that owns the Gazette Package Connection newspapers, they had a furlough. And there was like, you know, one day a week when you could not work for the newspaper. And also, guess what? They were not going to pay you. And so mm -hmm. it was a, an effort to save money. And so it was, I used my furlough days to volunteer at the local NPR station and learn how to do public radio. And uh, then when the furlough was over, I found myself doing both. Uh, by, the, by the time the furlough ended, I was full-time newspaper reporter who also did public radio on the side. And I did that for a number of years and then eventually flipped them. And now I do public radio full-time and newspaper writing on the side. And this is something I've had to get over as a host. Did you like listening to your own voice or is this something that you absolutely hated? <laughs> I, I tell you what I really hate is listening to old radio clips yes. uh, when I first started doing public radio. And man, that is painful to listen to. Um, <laughs> I was actually very fortunate to have some vocal training by this oh, really? woman who's called the NPR Whisperer. And so she coached me into getting the NPR sound. What does and that involve? What it, so the key is actually, this is probably simpler. I'm, I'm going to oversimplify this, but the key is to make it sound like your actual voice, which is like, duh. I mean, of course you want to <laughs> sound like your actual voice. Yeah. But the, the key is, so like you're reading a script, of course, but you want to make it sound like you're actually talking to somebody. So there are tricks like you want to visualize the person and you want to have a specific person that you're visualizing and you're actually talking to that person. 
And so in some ways, it, there's a bit of theater that's involved because mm-hmm. you're actually kind of acting in a way because you want to make it sound like you're not reading a script. But of course, you're reading a script because you're setting up the soundbite you're about to play. Of course, you're reading a script. But for the listener, it's really important to make it sound like they're speaking right to you. And there are people who are very talented at doing this. After I had this sort of vocal training, I sort of would hear things and I was like, oh, that person sounds like he or she's talking right to me. And so, but I know because I work in this industry, they are reading a script, but it really does sound like they're talking to you. So um, ever since I had that vocal training, I uh, listening to the sound of my voice on the radio doesn't bother me at all because I've, I've got a certain sound that I'm trying to sound like. Sure. And, I've, and I'm succe- and the, the more successful it is, the more it doesn't sound like you're talking on the radio. It's funny. It's, it's a little bit counterintuitive because the better you are at it, the less you see it or the less you think about it or the less you hear it in some ways. I mean, I've, in some ways it's like weeding the garden. You can spend five hours weeding the garden, but when you're done, you don't see all the weeds that were there. Right. So like, it's what you're not seeing. That's the important part. Before we kind of, uh, before we sign off here, I want to, I do want to talk about the other half of how I referred to you at the top of the show, because you are, you are a reporter, but you're also obviously an, an author, a published author. You've written four books. All available of, on Amazon.com. Available on Amazon.com. Make sure to get that plug in there. Um, and all of them are, are sort of, all of them are tied to local history in some way, whether that's in Alexandria or kind of more more broadly Northern Virginia. Um, obviously, I think anyone who's listened up until this point knows that you are passionate about history. What I'm interested in is how you uncover the stories that you've uncovered. You've written about everything from goat kind of ghost stories in Alexandria um, and kind of the hidden history of kind of of corruption and near do wells also in in this area what uh what draws you to these stories and kind of where do where do you find yourself finding them is it just you're searching through the library or you hear someone talking I like the way you phrase that, Cody. Ghost stories, corruption, and ne'er do wells, right? So, yes. like, what do those things have in common? They're all quirky, offbeat history, right? So, like, that's just the stuff that I'm drawn to. This sort of the interesting. It's almost like the water cooler talk, or sure. things that I mean. Going back to what I was talking about, the things that drive my news decisions is frankly just stuff that I'm interested in. So, like. Uh, as a reader, I would love to read a story about the woman from Loudon who poisoned all of her children with arsenic and then got involved in what was the trial of the century where you had all these national news outlets come and then she's acquitted at the last minute because a key piece of evidence was thrown out by the judge and then she disappears off the map. And all this happened in the 1870s. It was like the trial of the century. Like, this is the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. It is. It is decidedly quirky, decidedly (laughs) a little bit offbeat. Uh, But it's also, fortunately for me, the kind of thing I know other people aren't necessarily working on. So it gives me a lane to sort of be in and own. I guess the question I have is, are you working on a new book at all right now? Of course I am. Yes. Yes, I am. But I I can't tell you about it. All right. I just don't like talking about the work that I'm involved in now. And it's not because I think you're going to steal it or like our listeners are going to steal it. It's just like, well, what if things change and it's either doesn't happen or I change my direction or um, hopefully in the very near future, you will be able to buy it. Yeah. But I will also say the pandemic has totally screwed up the project that I've been working on. Because, you know, like I, because of the kind of work that I do, it's really intensive with libraries and archives and libraries and archives aren't open right now. And so the kind of work that I do has been, you know, at, at a standstill, 
Um, fortunately, we also live in a virtual online world where lots of archival stuff is actually available online. But that's a small fraction of the stuff that you can get at your library. People are under the false impression that everything is online. And mm-hmm. let me tell you something, as someone who lives in libraries and archives, no, that is not true. Everything is not on- online. There is a small fraction of stuff that is online that's very significant and important. But uh, it's like the tip of the iceberg. The larger part of the iceberg is in your library and is not digital. We can talk about your next book offline because I am interested. We can talk about my next book the next time I come on Speakeasy. How about that? <laughs> I, I, I'll take that. I'll take that deal. Do you find that uh, your interest in kind of your your passion for history has, is helpful for your work as a journalist? Yes. I. That is often a area where I go off on the quirky offbeat path that other people don't think about. Uh, so... Like like a good, good example of this is recently there was a controversy about the statue of Harry Bird on in the square of Capitol on Capitol Square, and so of course I'm interested in Harry Bird and his history, and so when we I did a story about the controversy surrounding the potential for removing the statue of Harry Bird, I went to quite a great detail about him and the machine that he ran. Uh, or even something as simple as like unemployment insurance. You know, when the pandemic hit and the economy crashed and everyone was taking unemployment, I was sort of researching the history of unemployment insurance and found an interesting bit of local history, which is our local congressman, uh, Howard W. Smith, was against it. And not only did he vote against it, he said, well, if you don't like the way I voted against this, you can turn me out of office at the next election. And guess what happened, Cody? Voters turned him out in the next election. So um, I love even anything that happens that's newsworthy has a backstory to it. Um, and I often find myself going down that rabbit hole of what's the what's the sort of history of whatever this thing is we're talking about. I, I always think about using the present as a way to understand the past. And that's the sort of way I think about it. And I think that's probably backwards for a lot of people. A lot of people would think about uh, using the past as a way to understand the present. Uh, but the way I always approach things is, is probably upside down from the way a lot of people think about it, which is using the present as a way to understand the past. I, I imagine that's probably, you're probably quite a treat for politicians you're talking about in terms of uh, if you're questioning them about a current current topic, bringing up you know, things that are like 50 years long, gone. It's funny you say that, Cody, because I learned a long time ago that you have to be very careful who you ask the, the question about stuff that happened in the 1830s or, or even in the 1950s, because there are... There are lots of people, there are lots of politicians that are really interested in this stuff and can talk about it at great length. As a matter of fact, we have an upcoming podcast episode. I'll plug one of our future episodes on Transition Virginia, where we talk about the readjusters, which was this uh, group of elected officials. It was a party, actually, in the 1880s that was progressive and a biracial coalition that did progressive stuff and they got rid of the poll tax and they funded public schools and they did all this progressive stuff and they were unseated by this group of sort of conservative Democrats that implemented Jim Crow. And so people think about this timeline in their heads. They think civil war, Jim Crow. But in reality, there was this bit in between a very brief period of time that people that this radical group of progressive uh, people, which included a lot of black elected officials, uh, had power and did really interesting stuff. So we have this podcast episode that's coming up about the readjusters. And we have an elected official on the show, um, 
Skylar Van Valkenburg, who is a delegate from the Richmond area. And this guy knows a ton about the readjusters. I was kind of blown away at how much he knows about this period in history. And he's just, this is kind of, you know, this is his thing. This is what he does. Uh, we also have the former head of the Virginia Historical Society on this podcast, and it's awesome. If you're interested in the readjusters and the quirks of what happened in 1880s Virginia politics, uh, and those people are out there, um, you, you'll you'll love this particular podcast. But um, so it's your question was about when you when you ask people stuff about the past, you're, you're often going to get dirty looks and I won't name names about people on the other side of that. So there are, there are people out there, elected officials who, when you ask them about stuff that happened in 1956 with like the Tallahassee bus boycott or something like that, you'll get this look like, why are you asking me about this? And a lot of people actually assume that the only reason you're asking them about stuff that happened in 1956 or even in the 1880s is because you're making the implication that they are old. Mm-hmm. And so you have to sort of know your audience here in terms of p- questioning people about Howard W. Smith and the things that he did when he was congressman, because some people really care and they think that that stuff is relevant and they can they can talk about that stuff in a way that's meaningful. And then other people, not only do they d- not care, but they think that you're insulting them. So you have to sort of know your audience in terms of who you're asking about that kind of stuff. Definitely. Through through all of your work, whether it's it's writing a new book or, or writing a new story, what has kind of kept you energized about the work that you do over the time you've been doing it? Well, it's always something new and I get yeah. to pitch my own stories. And so I uh, I get to do something different every day and I get to follow the stuff that I'm interested in. So what more could you ask for, right? Yeah, it's naturally energizing in that way. Well, Michael, we've we've covered a broad array of topics here and a broad array of centuries and decades. Um which is appropriate for a podcast with you. The way the way we kind of connect all these episodes together, and I know you are aware of this, is every show I will I will ask the guest of that episode a question that was posed by the guest from the previous episode. Um, and the, our guest the last episode was um, Stephanie Landrum, CEO of the Alexandria Economic Development Partnership, and she posed a question that I'm sure you uh, you and pretty much everybody else on in the city and across the world has been thinking very appropriate for her as well. Assuming recovery is around the corner, what's the one business or place you are most excited to return to? And it sounds like it might be the library, but I might be making an assumption there. (laughs) The library is a great answer. Actually, I hadn't thought about that. So I did listen to the Stephanie Landrum episode. I'm really glad that you're not hitting me with the question that she got hit with, which is much more thoughtful, uh, important question. And so I'm I'm much happier to answer the Stephanie Landrum question, uh, which has to do with what, like, once this is all over, assuming this ever ends, where, you know, where do you see yourself going? I'm going to cheat and give a bunch of places. So I'm going to start my day by going to the gym. I miss going yes. to the gym. Like I used to go to the YMCA in Delray. I went Same. every day and uh, I really miss it. And I miss the people there and sort of just the chit chat. And you, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the really cool thing about the YMCA in Delray is that the locker room conversation is like, okay, so if Tim Kaine becomes vice president, 
who becomes who fills the Senate seat and and that which congressional seat is going to open up because that congressman then like who's the Democrat that's going to fill the congressional seat and like this is the kind of stuff you overhear in the locker room at the YMCA which is fun but I mean just like physically like once the pandemic hit I immediately gained like 10 pounds and I've like was f- finally been able to take that off but just like I need to go to the gym so that's the first thing I'm going to do mm-hmm. um and then I'm going to gain it all back by going to Chadwick's and <laughs> having some huevos rancheros. And then I'll wander over to Old Town Books and I'll buy some books. Uh, and then probably I'll head over to Del Rey and go to Taqueria Poblano and have a margarita. And I'm just going to go hog wild once this is all over and uh, actually go out into the world and see people and do things. I love that you planned out an entire day. I absolutely love that. And I guess eventually I should get back to the library and work on my book, too. Yeah, well, that can come later. There's there's time yeah. for that. Um, so what what one question would you like to ask the next guest that will be appearing on the show? I struggled with this way more than my day because uh, Stephanie Landrum gave an e- easy question. So um, I would ask, because we're the podcast that you and I are now on was so sort of focused on journalism, I'd love to ask about the, your next guest's media consumption habits. Mm. So like in a standard week, what kinds of media do they consume? You know, like, do they like hard copy newspapers? I'm a hard copy newspaper person. I subscribe to the Post. I love the Washington Post. I get the the New York Times on Sunday. I love the Sunday New York Times. Uh, I would read it every day if I had the time or the bandwidth, which I don't. Uh, but I love the, the huge Sunday New York Times. I'm just, a, I love that sort of thing. When I'm able to, I head over to the Safeway and I get the New York Daily News. I love tabloid newspapers. I especially love the New York Daily News. Um, I I read the New Yorker. I love the New Yorker. I I read Virginia Business Magazine, um, and of course I pick up the Times every week. I love your work in the Times, Cody. I always like I pick it up every Thursday morning, and I say to myself, "Why didn't I think of that?" Cody's like stealing all the best stories in Alexandria. Uh, I just, I really do love the times. Actually, I read it every week, uh, pretty religiously. And of course the Gazette packet, I read closely all, everything else that's in there, including my wife's column about restaurants in Alexandria called appetite. And, uh, so media consumption habits, uh, which I guess they can answer it any way they want to, but I would be also curious to know if they listen to podcasts, do they listen to the speakeasy sure. podcast or, you know, that sort of thing. Definitely. I think that's, that's an apt question for this for this episode thank you again michael for for taking the time to talk with me and and going down a variety of rabbit holes on this show i really appreciate it please do some post-production editing and make me sound smart and like i know what i'm talking about i will i will for sure i'm gonna do the same for myself people don't know i sound like a total idiot before editing and then after no he doesn't no he doesn't genius (laughs) thank you alexandria take it easy 